Hello and welcome to another episode of For What It's Worth. I'm Evan Lucas, InvestMart's Chief Market Strategist, and joining me in the hot seat this week is none other than Tiki Fullerton, Business Editor at Sky News Australia. Tiki Fullerton, welcome to For What It's Worth. I think right now it's a very, very interesting time to be asking, particularly someone like yourself, who is very much following and involved in some respect with regards to Brexit. It's not something in Australia that we talk around probably as much in my view anyway as we should be because it's quite an, an interesting scenario. The reason I want to start with with someone like yourself is can I get you to give a bit of a a bit of background about how sort of the Brexit scenario has come about but also your belief of why Brexit actually could be a, a beneficial thing to the UK. Sure, Evan. Uh, good to be part of this. Now, look, Brexit has been going for three years. It's been three years since the referendum. So a lot of Australians will be very tired of hearing this ongoing thing. It's nothing like as tired as the electorate is <laughs> in Britain, I, I can assure you. Um, and uh, we are, you know, hurling our way towards yet another deadline, which looks like it's going to be delayed on Halloween. So some people's nightmares may not uh, may not actually come to greet them, uh, but the can could be kicked down the road again. And it is a complete chamozzle. Uh, there's no other word for it at the moment. Um, it came about because of the rising level of Euroscepticism in Britain. Uh, I mean, Britain, when Britain joined the common market, uh, and, and by the way, the French actually said we shouldn't be joining it. We fought very hard to get in. Mm-hmm. Uh, when Britain finally joined the common market, it was all about trade. Uh, and a lot of people at the time thought that would be a great thing. And it was. And we, ha- we you know, the, the, the Brits have benefited hugely in Australia and New Zealand uh, when we joined the common market, <clears throat> it was a disaster for, for trade relations. I mean, trade uh, between Britain and Australia fell dramatically as a result of that. We haven't been able uh, to trade with Britain, uh, you know, under WTO rules since that time because Britain is locked up mm-hmm. in uh, this European trading agreement. Now, since that time, there have been uh, a, a, been a slow travel uh, of power towards Brussels. And what is more, that uh, travel uh, looks like it's going to continue. So we've had the Maastricht Treaty, uh, we've had the Lisbon Treaty, we've had a whole series of treaties. And from the Eurosceptics' point of view, this is all very sinister. Uh, In 2015, before we had the referendum, David Cameron, the Prime Minister at the time, went to Europe because of this Euroscepticism. He never thought there'd be a referendum full of promises that we're going to deal with the Eurosceptics um, and the rise of Nigel Farage and his UKIP party, the Independence Party. And he came back from Brussels, frankly, not with enough to satisfy the Eurosceptics. And so he said, uh, right, well, I'm coming back with this package anyway. Um, It's pretty good, these concessions that we've got from Brussels. Uh, let's uh, let's have a referendum. And he was fully confident uh, that Remain would win. But no, um, the r- reverse happened. And to the horror of David Cameron, he had to resign as, as a result, uh, the, um, the, the Brexiteers uh, won. And so began this, uh, you know, tormented three years that, that, that we have had. Um, why do... <clears throat> those who are Eurosceptics and, and those who are, are pro-Brexit 
Why do they feel that way? Um, there are many reasons, which is why it is complicated. And, and depending on what sort of Brit you are, mm-hmm. um, it, d- different reasons may drive your view. Um, a, a lot of people talk about migration being one and Britain's ability to control its own borders here in Australia. We have our ability to control our borders. We are an island, by the way, so is Britain. And so from a Brexit point of view, uh, that was a big issue. And when David Cameron came back with these concessions, he promised to uh, make a lot of inroads in terms of delivering more control on immigration. Um, and he didn't really achieve what he said he was going to. So that, that was an annoyance. But I think there's a bigger and deeper thing, which is hard to put your hands, uh, you, you know, hard to put your finger on, which is really around this issue about sovereignty. Uh, now, the Remainers say, oh, this is just sort of intellectual rubbish from the, from the Brexit side. But it is amazing the number of people that you talk to. And Rem- Remainers would say, oh, look, the people who voted for Brexit are either, you know, less well-educated, you know, uh, or old, um, or they're these, um, you know, intellectuals who've got this idea of sovereignty, who, you know, which is all rubbish. But I think of those uh, Brexiteers or Brexit, pro-Brexit voting people who are, say, you know, well-educated and indeed people who aren't from all, all areas, you know, people uh, away from the cities in particular, the issue of not being able to control uh, your laws, including all sorts of things, um, all the way through to uh, criminal law. Uh, let me give you an example. Today, the place is in uproar over the uh, knighting of Jeff Boycott. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, there's an awful lot of women's uh, groups actually around the world who are going off at the moment. The fact that he's been given a knighthood, he's uh, 74, I think. Uh, this, is, um, this is after England has just lost the ashes. So there's this great cricketer that they, the Brits look up to, and he's from the north, which is strong Brexit territory. Uh, but he was accused and indeed uh, convicted in a French court of uh, bashing up his uh, then at the time girlfriend 25 years ago. Now, he was interviewed on the BBC just overnight uh, by Martha Carney on Radio 4. And uh, she went for him and said, uh, you know, don't you think this is why you haven't had the the knighthood, basically, for all these years? And do you think you deserve it? And he just, in my view, from a Brexiteer's point of view, clean bowled her. And he said, you know, uh, it was 25 years ago. I've always denied it. It was a French court. You know, they presume you're guilty before you're innocent. And on he he went. Now, Mm -hmm. this sort of... Uh, you know, I, I think there's going to be a lot of support for him in the North. Actually, French courts don't presume guilt before innocence. But if you look at the uh, 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 legal analysis around how a French criminal court works, it is less fair, quote unquote, than say Britain or UK, uh, Britain or US and, and Canada. Because uh, that's the argument, right, between is, civil uh, and criminal court. It's a, it's a very different system. So yeah. we, don't contr- we don't have control, um, sorry, the Brits don't have control of their, uh, their, a lot of their court process. Um, the, the whole thing also gets quite confused with the European Court of Human Rights, which is a different thing. Europe is the European Court of Justice. 
Um, but we don't have control, for example, in Britain for um, you know um, um, extraditing. Uh, we had great difficulty extraditing one of the um, terrorists in recent years. That took an awful lot of time. But you know, all the way through, even to small businesses in in Britain, they have an enormous amount of uh, EU red tape that they have to go through, um, and this whole uh, idea of the amount of money uh, every year. Britain is a net contributor by a lot into Europe and the largesse, the spending that goes on in Brussels. So there are many, many reasons um, around why uh, a lot of people in Britain say we've had enough. So, yeah, I mean, picking up on all that, that's... Um I think in a, almost in a, in a nutshell, that's sort of part of the synopsis of why probably Brexit is actually quite tricky in terms of getting it out there. And you talked around the difference between obviously civil law and common law between the European Union and, and Britain and there. What I want to sort of ask the question also is that you started that with the, tr- the movement around the single market and trade and the beneficial, adverted commas, movement for Britain with trade with regards to the European Union being the next door neighbour, the largest trading partner for the UK. It's not just that way. You look the other way. You look at the French. The French have a huge amount of investment into the UK. Same with the Germans. Does the question become, could Cameron have done a better role of this if he managed to separate trade from law? in this whole idea. Is that possibly where the original breakdown came from? Because after this, I want to talk to you around what's currently with Boris Johnson, his way of moving it. But I just want to, just to finally flesh out this whole scenario we've got with Brexit and where he sits in your view. If we, if the well, UK could well, have gone to trade. I mean, trade. it's a very interesting question. We'll talk about uh, Ireland in a minute and what yeah. Boris is trying to do. But um, it's a very interesting question you pose because uh, had he separated out trade and law, I think the response from Europe, which was at the time, even in 2015, he was doing it, and even under people like Ursula von der Leyen, who's just new, uh, these, are, these are more and more uh, pro um, sort of the European, um, the European project, right, which mm-hmm. is trying to deliver a Europe which is completely together, uh, both from a a monetary point of view, a trade point of view, a defense point of view. Um, So you you had this uh, um, reaction in Europe that, no, we don't feel like we want to give too much back to Britain because there are 27, 28 countries and what we do for Britain, we've then got a problem with somebody else. So... Brussels has an, has an issue that really they don't want to give any concessions to, to any country. And I don't think that in Brussels at the time they thought that the, any referendum would deliver um, a leave vote. Um, so I don't think even if he had done that, uh, it would have been received well at all. Uh, I would just say, sorry, I keep saying we and, and they because I'm a dual citizen. Yes. Um, but... Um, the the I think if there was a criticism at that time, it is on the European side. And had they had their time again, I strongly believe that Brussels would have given Cameron uh, more of the concessions that he was asking for at that time. And none of this 
would have occurred. Yeah, because the the the, the counterpoint, that, and sort of not counterpoint, the the the, the following uh, sort of conciliatory point is is now what's going on in Italy, um, and the fact mm. that you have the the five star movement who are in some respects even more anti EU, and and clearly your term before around sovereignty is what is very hard to to quantify, but is clearly playing out not just in the UK but across Europe and you know the, mm. the rise of populism of that idea is is building so I, I agree mm. with you and I think it's a very interesting point um, about how the history could have gone because now we're looking at the future and how the future will be mm. as you alluded to the 31st looks very very unlikely now for Johnson to actually see his original idea of, of how Brexit might transpire considering he's now lost his second vote against an earlier election first and foremost i know that you have had dealings and have actually crossed paths with with boris johnson many many times through your life whether that was through university or through interviewing your first and foremost your opinion about his his leadership and about what he could bring and then how he's going to transition through this period considering that you know his populism in the electorate and his populism in the parliament are clearly two different things how does he navigate that as well well, that is the $64 million question, <laughs> yep. Evan, isn't it? Yep. I, I mean, uh, Boris um, and I were at university together, we were at Oxford Union together, so debating, um, to, to, uh, you know, in the, in, the, in the same union. So I crossed, crossed with him there. And then, and then as you say, I, I've, I've um, caught up with him a couple of times since then. Um, he hasn't changed one iota. Um, and his power uh, is really... Is, is his power of personality. Um, for all his faults, and they've been talked about at great length, uh, you know, before he was elected as Prime Minister, you could have pointed to his record as Lord Mayor of London, which was, I would say, an excellent, uh, an excellent period, in no small part because there were no massive stuff-ups. Mm-hmm. And being Lord Mayor of London, you've got a lot of downside risk. So he can talk about what he did for knife crimes and all that sort of stuff. But actually, nothing went wrong, really wrong, apart from the fact that he was strung up on a high wire. And and that gave him, I think, a lot, a lot of a lot of cred. He had a lot of loyal managers, many of whom are around him now. Some which are quite controversial. Um, but I think uh, what he potentially. If it went his way, and obviously it's a massive if at the moment, uh, delivers for Britain is precisely what Theresa May could not. Um, and that is uh, a, a tougher ability to uh, negotiate. And he sees this, I, I believe, yes, as, as a war game. Uh, he doesn't see his finest hour as becoming prime minister. Never did. He sees his finest hour as delivering... Brexit, right? Mm-hmm. And so the other day he's already died in a ditch before he go, he'd go to Brussels. Now we'll see um, whether whether he, he keeps that or whether he can somehow demonstrate that he's done absolutely everything he possibly can. And my goodness, he's tried the most extraordinary things, which and he's been accused of being unconstitutional, goodness knows what. Um, and there may be another few tricks up his sleeve, but um, his massive contrast to May is that he strongly believes that you cannot go to Europe and ask to get out of the customs union and be able to trade with Australia and the United States, indeed, whoever you want to. You cannot do that if you don't at least have the possibility of a no-deal threat on the table. And there I think he's right. That's... uh... 
And again, that gets back to this whole point, isn't it, between the separation between European overlays of law and European overlays of trade and, and what being in and out of the single market slash being in and out of the European Union could actually mean for the UK. Again, crystal balling to you here uh, is how does he how does he play that out? Because at the moment he, he clearly hasn't got any form of change at all to what May had got with her deals that the European Union gave to her at the end of yeah. Christmas last year all the way through to basically when we went into, into Japan. Um, it's uh, probably the interesting question, therefore, from that is where and how does he actually get the, 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 the conciliatory effects that you just alluded to? So there are two games going on here, my, my view. One is trying, genuinely trying to secure uh, a, a Brexit, even if it's slightly after October the 31st, uh, you know, or, you know, a, a Brexit, some sort of deal, right? Which is why uh, he's dealing with the DUP right now, uh, because, of course, the Irish backstop is mm. fundamental. The Europeans knew that from the get-go, and they were, were right. Uh, it, is, it is Britain's Achilles heel. People in Britain feel very, very strongly about uh, the Good Friday Agreement, um, and, uh, and so quite... Uh, you know, cunningly or, or cleverly, if you like, Europe has used the backstop um, to to really push uh, Britain in these negotiations. Now she, he's uh, he's just been talking to Arlene Forster on the idea that uh, that that Ireland should be a whole island, and we should have potentially a border in the sea when it comes to uh, customs on you know, checking quality of goods, including a lot of livestock. Now, that's quite different from the tariffs game. Now, we'll we'll see how the DEP um, look at that and whether there is any movement there. He could at least take something. He promised to do that, to take it back to Europe. He's also promising he's never going to go to, to Europe. Mm. <laughs> but um, but maybe he can talk to the, the Europeans. Um, this is the game of how to get a deal. The idea of going back, which he is legally required to by the parliament, uh, who frankly doesn't support him on a lot of this stuff, he is legally being forced now to go back to Brussels and ask for a delay. Now, what a lot of people are not talking about is everybody's assuming the Europeans just going to say yes. I mean, the French foreign minister came out the other day saying, no, we're not going to give him another three months, because he's been going on it long enough. Yep. It is a game of chicken because neither side, Europe nor Brussels, want to be responsible for a no-deal Brexit because for years, one side will blame the other. It was all our fault. You know, every trade negotiation that happens, whether, you know, once we've left or, 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 or whatever situation, whether we're back in Europe, it'll all be those bloody Brits, you know. <laughs> so nobody, no, neither side wants the blame for this. It's a, it's a really, really important point. Um, the second big game that's going on is when, if and when, Boris then goes to a general election, if he cannot get a deal and he cannot somehow wangle his way to a no-deal Brexit on October the 31st, despite proroguing Parliament and everything else, no one's talking about um, calling a, um, a vote of no confidence in himself as you get nearer to the Brexit withdrawal day, 
I'm not quite sure how that would work out once Parliament is sitting again after the supposed European meeting. Now, uh, but, but anyway, assuming that that's off the table, then we've got this general election. And so a lot of this play is also about how Boris, who has put himself as the man of the people in a democratically, you know, as a result of a democratic referendum, which wanted one thing, Boris is on their side. There's a whole lot of parliamentarians who, who he says don't represent the people. So he's been putting himself between parliament and the people. And it's a, it's a big, big, highly leveraged uh, game. So a lot of his policy work will be towards positioning himself with the electorate as well, I think. That's a very interesting point because that almost sounds very almost Oliver Cromwell-esque in terms of the principle of putting that in, in terms of him between the parliament and the people and him turning around saying, people go home. Uh, mm. Final part, final part of all this, because I think the, uh, the interesting part you raised there, and I, and I won't have time unfortunately to cover it, is the Irish backstop and possibly what you were suggesting is the idea that there's almost a reunification there of Northern Ireland to Ireland and that's a... That is a, a political slash ideological... But not on tariffs. Correct. Not on tariffs. Yeah. Okay, so this is the sort of, whether it's a fig leaf in one direction or the other, depending upon what side of the argument you're on. Yep. Not on tariffs at the moment. So, yeah, it, we'll see how it, it goes. It would still be very interesting to see how Belfast would take that um, and where they would sit on that. The final part, for a very personal question, what's your best, what's your hope of the best outcome that could happen from all this? The best outcome is uh, what a lot of parliamentarians, including some of those 21 that were sacked from the whip the other day, uh, would like to see, which is a deal with Europe on withdrawal that gives Britain the ability to go and trade with uh, whoever she pleases and uh, without a backstop. So in other words, a withdrawal agreement uh, that uh, allows for then a transition period of a year or two or whatever to then renegotiate all the terms that need to be, need to be negotiated. Uh, and because uh, second um, best position from, I think, from my point of view, uh, has to be a, um, a no-deal Brexit. Uh, it would have been quite a different thing if you'd asked me this question a year ago when Theresa May said, yes, we've got no deal sorted, but no preparations, frankly, on either side of the channel had been done. Um, and, uh, but now there have been a lot of preparations. I mean, Michael Gove is working incredibly hard on that at the moment. Um, and of course, there will be, uh, you know, it won't be Y2K, will it? I mean, of course, there'll be tensions, there'll be uh, problems at ports um, as everybody rethinks re re all this. But it won't be uh, that the city of Cambridge suddenly will lose all its research grants and basically crumble into the dust um, and there'll be some university in Europe, which is the place we're all going to go. No, AstraZeneca has ploughed hundreds of millions of dollars into, into that place uh, in recent years and grants will be renegotiated. The city of London will not become, I'm much more worried about the city of Hong Kong than I am about the city of London, uh, the city of London won't become, you know, uh, some sort of uh, outlier uh, compared to, uh, you know, some German city, uh, because frankly, people want to live in London, you know, um, and it's manufacturing that will get hit. 
But this idea that the car industry has gone basically to the dogs in Britain because of Brexit, I think is, you know, very unfair. There are many other reasons why the car industry has gone that way. So that's my second view that I think I know Brexit is better. I mean, if we stay, uh, stay in the customs union, what on earth was this all for? The worst possible scenario is... Theresa May's deal was, was to basically stay in the customs union. We have a backstop. We're danger of staying in the customs union, but also we have no power or or influence in Europe. You become the vassal state. Um, I don't think the option is open for us to stay as if none of this had ever happened. But that would be better than where Theresa May was heading, in my view. It is a fascinating talk and a very, very interesting discussion, one that we'll watch very closely. Tiki Fullerton, thank you so much for your insights. Evan Lucas, huge fan of yours. Thank you. Thank you. That's all for this week. If you're interested in finding out more about Investmart, where you'll find all of our previous episodes, as well as Alan Cole's weekend briefing, thoughts from Australia's best financial commentators, head to investmart.com.au. Investmart, let's make wealth happen.